MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program for politics. History. The security national. Crime organized. Money. Social. Global. Corruption. And Now, with you, 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 We've got a great show, a terrific show. Jen Merchia is here. She is a professor of rhetoric at Texas A&M and the author of Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. I've known her casually, like on Twitter for a long time, but we've never actually spoken before. So this was a, a lot of fun to talk to her. We cover a lot of ground in the interview. We talk about the foundations of democracy. She has an earlier book that she wrote about that, which is fabulous. We talk about rhetoric and the history of rhetoric. We talk about rhetorical devices that Trump uses, which you'll recognize when she goes over them, if you don't know them already from her book. We talk about demagogues and what is a demagogue and how Trump is a demagogue and are there other demagogues in the GOP that we should be aware of. We talk about the power of nostalgia. We talk about the rhetorical style of conservatives. We talk about Texas, which is where she lives now and, um, you know, maybe isn't doing great work in terms of democracy. So I asked her to explain Texas for me. And, you know, we talk about other, lots of other things besides. It's a great interview worthy of being the season finale of Prevail. I just want to say a couple of quick announcements up front. I am taking four weeks off. I don't want to, but I'm forcing myself to do it. The podcast will be on hiatus until August 25th, Friday, August 25th. Prevail will return for season six. I've already got some interviews lined up. It's going to be a great season. I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, I will be on the 5-8. I'm going to take at least probably two weeks off of the four for the 5-8, but you can find me there. Okay, I'm really bad about, you know, asking people to support the work up front in the podcast. I'm going to try to rectify it right now quickly. Uh, first of all, I don't have a Patreon or anything like that. So if you want to support this podcast, please go to my Substack, which is gregoliar.substack.com and become a subscriber. It costs $6 a month, $55 for the year, and it supports everything that I do. I'm very grateful to the subscribers that I have. If you aren't one, you'd like to support what I'm doing, please come subscribe if you're a video guy, I've got the show with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB, The 5-8, which is F-I-V-E, Roman numeral 8, um, over on the YouTube. Please subscribe to that. You can subscribe. That is free to subscribe. All you got to do is literally click a button. And that would be super helpful. Um, if you want to join that group, you can do that as well. The memberships there start at $1.99 a month and you get like content where you get to come watch us do our silly after hours, which is basically like a, a streaming after the after the show that we do like every other week. It's a lot of fun. The other thing you could do that would be super helpful, um, if you don't mind, if you like this show, share it, tell a friend about it, uh, you know, click that little whatever button on your iPhone or your Android and send it to somebody that you like who you think might like the show. 
um, and have them subscribe. That would be great. The more subscribers we get, the more downloads, the better. We would appreciate that. Also, The 5-8 is now an audio podcast. Please go seek that out and become a subscriber there. To do that costs nothing. So um, lots of ways you can help if you're so inclined. I, of course, would be very grateful. Before we get to the interview with Jen, just a couple of thank yous. I want to rattle off here up front. I want to thank, first of all, you for listening to the show. I always appreciate my listeners and my subscribers. Can't do the work without you, so thank you so much. Often, music that I use in the background of the fake ads is by a gentleman named Dar Golan, D-A-R-G-O-L-A-N. He's got a YouTube page. It's all like free to license and stuff like that. But I want to give him a shout out because it's really great stuff and it's free and he makes it free and uh, it's wonderful for this kind of thing. So Dar Golan, thank you. Um, I'd like to thank LB and Chunk for working with me uh, over on the 5-8 and um, often enhancing the whatever, the parody songs and the um, the fake ads and stuff that you hear on this podcast. So thanks to them. I want to thank from MSW Media, I want to thank Kenai Williams and Molly Hockey, who helped me put this show together and do some of the sound work on it and stuff like that. I want to thank my friend Kimberly Johnson. She's also uh, the social media manager at MSW and uh, does a great job getting the word out. And I want to thank Allison Gill, who runs the mothership and has about, I think at last count, 30,000 podcasts that she's doing at MSW. Thanks, AG. One note about MSW Media as a, as a company and as an entity, there is no like collusive control here. All the shows that are on the network that, uh, you know, we're independent shows. I've never had any sort of production meeting with anybody where somebody has said, cover this, don't cover that. You know, my show, Prevail Here, is 100% generated by me. I decide who comes on the show and who doesn't come on the show. Nobody has any influence over that. So if there's some like weird conspiracy theory going around that, oh, the MSW people or the, it's fucking bullshit. Okay, so please don't believe that. I do what I want. Nobody tells me what to do. That's how this shit works. So if you believe that, um, I've got a bridge to sell you, you know, spanning the Hudson River from Highland to lovely downtown Poughkeepsie. What else? I don't know. Stanford president had to resign because uh, of an article and, and, and investigative journalism done by the student paper, which is, you know, I hope people are really paying attention to this in the media sense, because getting the president to resign is basically the goal of you. If you're know, if you a, a real journalist at the school paper, that's your job, man. It's to focus light, shine light on the administration and hold them to account. And uh, big kudos to everybody at the Stanford student paper for all their involvement in doing this. It's very impressive. I think, you know, it's like at the end of the uh, Mike Tyson's punch out, you know, you got to go fight Mike Tyson. That's what, that's what they did. They knocked out Mike Tyson. So good for them. Good for journalism. Maybe this is a, a sign that journalism is on the way back, man. You know, real journalism, real investigative journalism that has good, positive, real world results. Hats off to them. All right. That's all I got up front. I'll be back on August 25th on the podcast. Again, you can watch me some of that time on the 5-8 on Friday nights. In the meantime, please enjoy your summer. Don't forget, it's really going to be hot, so don't go outside too long if you live in one of these areas where it's going to be like infernally hot. Um, Wear your sunscreen, drink lots of water. We will see you on August 25th. We'll be right back with Jen Merchia. (laughs) 
Without a drop we are ingrained Each time we watch him get arraigned He submits a not guilty plea They don't take him into custody No handcuffs No mugshot and no regret And yet, this is his third indictment. Our expectations are so low. We can't get rid of him, we know. Whenever justice makes a move, F POTUS poll numbers improve. And he's a criminal, it is absurd. This is his third indictment. If everything Trump touches dies, what lives forever are his lies. He's done the country so much harm We have to hope the third time's a charm I know just how to make America great Just wait, this ain't his last indictment Jen Murchia, welcome to Prevail. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi. Thanks for joining me. I have, there's so many things I want to talk to you about because I've known you sort of casually on Twitter for way too long now. We've been, we've been calling out like Trump stuff for way too long. And this is the first time we've spoken. So it's I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you because uh, I want to pick your brain on a great number of things. Um, you wrote the book called Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump which is behind you on a very lovely uh, end table there, um, which no one can see because it's an audio <laughs> podcast. So I'm going to, but it is set up very nicely. Um, we're going to get into that later on. Um, before we go there, I want to, I want to start off in a very remedial way because I, I feel like sometimes, um, and by sometimes we, I mean me, you know, I just assume that everybody knows everything and I don't know things. And I like to be like, oh, let's, let's, Hit the brakes for a second. So you're a professor of rhetoric, okay? Yeah. Um, so let's start there in a very basic way. What is rhetoric? What does a, re a rhetoric professor teach? What's on the syllabus? Who are like the key historical figures? Is there like a Babe Ruth of rhetoric? Like, you know, <laughs> hip us to this stuff. <laughs> oh, okay. I So I love this question. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Good. Okay, Mr. Uh, Compost. <laughs> Another word that people might have used um, to refer to rhetoric is sophist or sophistry. And in ancient Athens, the sophists were the teachers of rhetoric or public speaking or persuasion. And so people who teach what I teach, um, we know a lot about communication, about persuasion and how that works. Um, I teach classes in propaganda, 
presidential communication, sometimes social movements, argumentation, things like that. And I read a lot of history and political theory um, and even some, you know, cognitive psychology and like social psychology and stuff like that. Uh, we pull from lots of different disciplines to try to understand how is it that people are able to convince one another through words to do or not do or value or not value, remember history or forget history in a certain way. Um, all of those things that are crucial to understanding how political life works. That's a good answer. Um, and is there like, who are the famous like sophists of the, dudes, of the like the who OG? are the main guys? Like, yeah. So um, our my discipline uh, traces its roots back to Aristotle. He wrote a book called On Rhetoric. Um, the way we tell this story is that Aristotle would have inherited Plato's Academy, um, except for Plato hated rhetoric and democracy, and Aristotle saw at least a value for it, a use for it, although he wasn't a Democrat. And so people have been studying rhetoric as rhetoric using the Aristotelian book since, you know, the fifth century BC, um, almost continuously. And um, it used to be like the essential way that education was taught. It's called the trivium. So it was um, logic and rhetoric and that third thing that I can't remember now, but I will. Math of some kind. I don't know. <laughs> the other thing. Ethics? <laughs> grammar? I have no idea. Grammar. I think it was grammar. And uh, yeah, so uh, modern-ish um, people point to a guy named Kenneth Burke, who wrote a bunch of books in the 1940s and 50s and 60s about rhetoric and language. So those are the main guys. I don't know if there's like a famous rhetorician today, like a per maybe me. I don't know. Like yeah, no, I'm just curious. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around it. You know. Yeah. So people in English um, study this, and people in communication. Okay. Uh, no, it sounds. It's all really fascinating. How now? How did you become interested in this? What was your? Did you have like a a superhero Spider Man gets bitten? <laughs> by, you know, whatever Peter Parker bitten by the spider moment or? <laughs> yeah. So my origin story. Um, well, I always liked words. Um, you know, I was always the kid who talked too much in class and I always liked reading and I always wanted people to like know that I like to read and could talk, I guess, <laughs> um, obnoxiously maybe. But so when I was uh, in high school, I was in journalism and then I was an undergrad, I was a broadcasting major and I was on the speech team and competed in public speaking events. And I wanted to like be a journalist and find out the truth and tell it to people and expose corruption and make the world a better place. And then as I worked in media, um, I was uh, like a part-time <laughs> DJ at an adult contemporary station in California. And I worked um, at NPR. Uh, I was like the local All Things Considered anchor. And I worked at a ABC affiliate in Sacramento as a writer. I found that that wasn't exactly what we were doing. Um, it was more like um, ripping off wire stories and reading them or rewriting stories that were in the local paper. And it wasn't like the investigative journalism that I thought I was going to get to do. And so I decided to go to grad school and um, majored in political communication and um, became a rhetorician because I was really interested in democracy and communication. 
And if you're really interested in democracy and communication, you could like count things on the news and like how many times, you know, mm. we framed a story this way or how many times, you know, the social movement got quoted in a story or, or, or whatever. You could count things or you could analyze like how the words worked. And I was more interested in how the words worked. Um, and specifically, I was really interested in citizenship, in terms of participating in politics, why people were disengaged from politics, what democracy meant. Um, so that was what I ended up writing my first book about. It's called Founding Fictions. And it's basically the story of how the founding fathers imagined that the citizens would participate in a government based on the will of the people. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, why, why don't people participate? What have you found out? Why do you think that so many people don't vote and stuff like that? Yeah. So I, my argument in that book is that citizenship um, could be understood as active, um, right? Meaning that we have an important role to play. We're officers of the government. But in the founding era, that was viewed as very dangerous. Um, citizen participation was viewed as chaotic and destabilizing. And the whole point of the Constitution was to create a stable system of government. Um, and so the people and their opinions were too dangerous. And so um, my argument there is that, yeah, apathy, disengagement, all of that is a logical response to a government that was designed to prevent us from actively participating in the political process. Oh, wow. That's that's very interesting. I was just thinking about like sort of the founders this morning and something I was writing like, you know, we have this idea of them as being, oh, democracy and, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and all that kind of thing. And really, they're just American oligarchs who own slaves and didn't want to pay taxes and, and set up, like you said, the government so that, you know, the power of the, uh, you know, the, the the Senate is, you know, elected by them and the, you know, indirect election of the president, which has plagued us to this day. So they, they baked these anti-democratic processes into the founding document. It's, it's, and it's interesting that um, it never occurred to me before that, yes, of course, that would be why people are like, yeah, all right, fine, fuck you, I'm not even going to bother. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's not the story we tell. Um, and if you're interested in that story, I really like trace it out like word for word, like throughout um, the whole period. Um, between 1764 and about 1850. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that in popular political discourse right now, um, and for a while, you know, there's been this whole like, oh, we're, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And the conservatives say that to say, to justify like exclusionary processes, right? Like, oh, we should limit suffrage because we're not even a, you know, a democracy. Whereas the liberals deny that premise um, as, as a historical fact. Uh, and I think they do it because they think that that will advance the cause of democracy, but that's wrong. Um, it is in fact the case, as you say, that the founders explicitly rejected democracy as a form of government. Now it was radical for them at the time to create a republic, but they were very clear that they had created a republic. They were very clear in their arguments that they wanted one, um, as James Madison said, where the actual power, um, you know, was as far away from the, he used the metaphor of a pyramid, right? So he says that the power is at the top of the pyramid. The people are the base, which is the necessary foundation of the pyramid. But that power is actually as far away from the top and the bottom yeah. as possible. Um, and, you know, liberals today 
deny that um, because I, I think they think that that's better for them. But to me, when I wrote the book, I was like, people are going to read this and they're going to be so mad that they're going to revise the constitution and make things more democratic. Nobody read it, first of all. <laughs> um, and then secondarily, like I have just watched befuddled as people keep making this argument that I think is against actual um, democratic reform. Yeah. It's also against historical fact. I mean, we haven't, you know, Black men couldn't vote until after the Civil War. And then they immediately in the southern states, you know, tried to strip them uh, of the right to vote in every all these horribly yes. nefarious ways. Women couldn't vote until 1920, which isn't that long ago. And until the Civil Rights Act, really, it's, it was just this voter suppression machine. There was the line in succession where um, Skarsgård, who's from, I guess, uh, Sweden or wherever, Norway, wherever he's from on the show, is like, you know, your republic is only about as old as Botswana's. So maybe you should settle <laughs> down. Your democracy is only that mature, you know, uh, despite yeah. what you say. So, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. And, um, you know, I, I guess when when the Republicans are doing these voter suppression things, they're really trying to take it back to the way that it used to be you know, to, uh, I don't know, make America great again or something like that. I yeah. Know. I mean, voter suppression is the norm. Um, yeah. you know, we've only had since the 1960s, right. We've only had mm -hmm. that many years of universal suffrage in this country. So, yeah. Yeah. It's not what I think most people think. So, okay. So you wrote about, um, six rhetorical devices that Donald Trump uses. Um, so give us a rundown on what they are. I know I'm sure you're probably tired of this, but just for people that don't know, uh, if you give us a rundown, because I think it is important to kind of, you could almost, it's like a bingo card watching this guy talk <laughs> where you could be like, oh yeah, he did the thing. And, uh, you know, you, you wrote your, there's more current examples too than the ones that you talk about in the book. So just give, give everybody a, a rundown on these, on these six things, if you don't mind. Yeah, there is actually a bingo card. Um, okay. So the book is about his 2016 campaign. Um, so you're right, like there's a lot more examples. Um, and the book came out in 2020 during the election. So there's six rhetorical strategies that I show that he used. Um, and the context is that in 2015 and 2016, the United States was experiencing a historical crisis of distrust and frustration and uh, polarization. And any normal political figure, someone like Joe Biden, traditional politics guy, would look at that situation and do what Joe Biden did actually in 2020, which is to try to solve those problems, right? Try to tone down the rhetoric, try to knit the community together, try to ameliorate the problems of distrust and polarization, frustration. Donald Trump looked at that crisis in American politics and saw an opportunity right, to exploit it. And so what I try to show in the book is that he looked at that situation and he used three rhetorical strategies that would bind him to his base. And he used three rhetorical strategies that would push him and his followers away from everyone else, right, to take advantage of the frustration, distrust, and polarization. So uh, the ones that bind him to his base, he used, first of all, ad populum, which is arguing that his people are the best people. Right. So you would have heard um, this is appealing to the wisdom of the crowd. He, you would have heard not only Trump's people are the best people, Trump's people are the smartest people, Trump's people are the real Americans. Right. So using essentialist claims like that. 
Um, and that works for him because as a demagogue, someone who wants to lead the people, um, he has no power unless he has a base of popular support. And so he's constantly praising his people. They're the best people. They're the strongest people. The whole thing's a movement, right? They're so strong and powerful together. Um, and so he keeps them with him by constantly making ad populum appeals. Um, the second thing that he used, and this is the thing that people like to hear about a lot, is um, paralipsis, which colloquially is, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And that's where Trump, yeah, you know, I would never say that uh, Ted Cruz's dad had something to do with assassinating JFK, but uh, I don't know. It was in I the mean, papers. Yeah, it's you know? there's pictures of it. So <laughs> there's pictures. Looks an awful lot like that guy on the train. Nobody knows. Anyway, they wouldn't have put it in there if it, you know, these are big guys. Anyway, um, and so the reason why paralipsis is a way of binding himself to his base is that it makes you think that Trump is telling you the real like dirty truth, like what he really, really thinks. Mm. Right. And so it gives you this idea that he's authentic. He's being real with you and that he's telling you like the backstage stuff, that it's not all for show and that he's authentic and an authentic truth teller, which is really important because he's, you know, arguing that he's against corruption, that he's not uh, poll tested and teleprompted and someone who's just listening to, you know, the political experts or whatever. And so that helps him to seem like he's really going to solve the problems that he's, you know, telling you exist in the world. Uh, and then the third thing that he uses is he uses American exceptionalism. Um, and American exceptionalism is the idea that um, America has a unique or special role in the world. It has a special place in world history. Some people take American exceptionalism to mean American greatness, you know, which is how Trump uses it, of course. But yeah. typically in presidential history, when they invoke American exceptionalism, it is usually to talk about our obligations as a nation, right? So yeah. to say things like we we have a special role to spread democracy in the world. And so therefore we should do X or Y, um, you know, policy because that's our obligation to world history and to the world. But for Trump, it was winning, right? So yeah. he would always say, and this is part of his hero narrative, I'm born on flag day, <laughs> right? And because I'm born on flag day, I am like America itself. <laughs> I am America personified. My success is American. You know, my success is America's success, um, right? And so it's always, you know, I'm a winner. America's going to win with me. We're tired of losing all the time. It's a zero sum game and, you know, vote for me and we'll all be winners. Is that why he made out with the flag in that picture? Remember the picture? Yes. Yeah, he's like, oh my yes. God, we both have a birthday. He's always humping a flag. Yeah, it's weird. Or flagpole. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's why. Um, yeah. That's exactly okay. why. <laughs> They're like birth buddies. They're like- you know. They are. It's his birthday. He's yeah. very proud of that. Um, and then he used three strategies to push him and his now very bonded followers away from himself and, and themselves. And so the first one is uh, ad baculum. So as ad baculum is um, threats of force or intimidation. Um, so he's constantly talking about how strong he is um, and threatening those people with violence or repercussions or whatever. His second thing is he's using uh, ad hominem, which is attacking the person instead of their argument. Yeah. Um, so this could be 
low energy Jeb. This could be Lion Ted. This could be Crooked Hillary. This could be like any number. I mean, there were thousands, maybe hundreds. <laughs> sanctimonious. Hundreds. There were probably hundreds. Hundreds of these nicknames. I think really right? Truth Social should just be called Ad Hominem. I think that would be the good name for his social media network. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, your enemy has no redeeming qualities. Um, and so you can only brand them as bad people or animals and then threaten them, you know, to attack. So all ad fallacies, so ad hominem, ad baculum, ad populum, those are all distraction strategies. The word ad means toward. And so you're uh, redirecting the audience's attention away from whatever the central issue is and toward the person or toward the threat or whatever. Uh, don't pay attention to whatever the real issue is. Pay attention to something. So then the third thing, um, so we have uh, at baculum, we have ad hominem. And then the third one is reification. And so that is treating people as objects. Um, and so the argument there or the strategy there is like, these aren't even real people, right? So in the good side of it, he had said, you know, sort of using essentialist things, you know, we're the real Americans. Well, they're not even people, right? <laughs> it's not even that they're not even, you know, real Americans and they don't count, but they're not even people. And so the combination of those three things of ad hominem, of ad baculum and of reification have traditionally, historically in the United States and around the world been used for genocide, uh, warfare. It's a recipe for war rhetoric, um, which basically says those no good, not even real people don't count and show we should destroy them. And so using that basic recipe, those six strategies, uh, Donald Trump is basically able to control the political conversation, um, of course, folding in conspiracy theory and, you know, lots of other things, um, but is able to control the conversation and to position Hillary Clinton and all Democrats as um, these terrible, like not even real people who are, you know, irrationally against us good people who we know to be good people because aren't we so strong in America? Yeah. Uh, as you were saying those three things, it, it occurs to me that a, a good historical example of those three things working together is Pope Urban II doing the whole recruitment for the First Crusade, where it was exactly that, like, you know, these people are horrible, they're you know, they're doing all these horrible things. We have to arm ourselves and go get them. And, you know, uh, and again, they're less than people because they're not good Christians, blah, blah, blah. And we saw this was a long time ago. People made, you know, big pilgrimages over there and lots and lots of people died. And yeah, there's a long history of political leaders using exterminationist rhetoric, um, yeah. which is, you know, these are non people. Let's kill them. Yeah. Um, in the case of the crusade, I mean, it, you know, yeah. it worked. It was really horrible um so uh okay this is a good time to take a quick break we'll be right back with jen Murchia. hi this is john crier and i am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called lawyers guns and money that'll challenge everything you think you know about u.s covert operations and presidential misconduct from jack bryan the director of american psyop comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. 
Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Jen Marchia. Okay, your book is called Demagogue for President. Um, so, and you start off, you talk about the demagogue and the whole meaning of the demagogue, which, you know, in the original Greek, you go back to the to the language and it's not um, something that's inherently bad. It just is, but it's become this sort of bad thing. Um, so what is, start there too, to, to, in, the, in the idea of being remedial here. What is mm-hmm. a demagogue in the popular sense now when we say someone's a demagogue? Yeah, so the the translation in Greek means um, a leader of the people. So um, demo, demo um, is the people, and agogos means leader, and so it literally translates to a leader of the people. Um, what we know about demagogues from ancient Greece largely comes from people who were against uh, democracy, right? So hmm. people like Plato and Aristotle, when they wrote about uh, Thucydides, Herodotus, anyway, when they wrote about um, you know their history, a lot of them were um, former aristocrats, and so they weren't you know sort of interested in telling a good story about democracy and the leaders of the people, and so. One way of understanding the demagogue is that they are a misleader of the people. And so mm-hmm. that's the way that we use the word today. Um, and it tends to be, if you look it up in the dictionary, it tends to be someone who uses polarizing propaganda for their own political gain, um, which is legit. I mean, that's uh, one way of understanding it. The other way of understanding it is that The demagogue is the person who justly or heroically leads the people um, against the other parts of the state, which are viewed as corrupt. Um, And so one thing that I think is very clear is that Trump's followers see him as a heroic demagogue. Um, And he, of course, cultivated this heroic image. Um, But so they see him as 
as someone who is defending their interests against the other parts of the state, which they believe are absolutely corrupt and corrupted um, and irredeemable. And they need someone who's going to fight for them. And he's told them that he's their guy. Um, whereas everyone else sees him as a misleader of the people, as someone who uses the polarizing propaganda for their own gain. Um, but yeah, it really depends on how you tell that story and what your subject position is. Yeah, it's interesting. And without the people, the followers, a demagogue is basically just a guy, you know, shouting yeah. stuff. At the, uh, he's Abraham Simpson of shouting at the cloud. You know, there's no there's no there there. So it's important to yeah. to have those people. I think you write about that. But um, but I have a theory. I want to I want to float float this idea. One of the things that has happened in the last you know four or five years that's always puzzling to me is that the Republicans had the opportunity at the first impeachment um, in January of 2020 to get rid of this guy. They could easily have done it. All it would have taken is like maybe two senators to come forward and been like, that's it. And he would have been gone. Pence would have been the president. We, he would have had, I don't know, six, seven months to try to get rid of COVID. Maybe he would have done a better job uh, you know, with that than Trump wound up doing since Pence presumably wouldn't have been spending most of his time trying to figure out how to monetize all of our pain. Um, <laughs> but they didn't do that. They didn't do it. They they kept Trump there. They protected him, um, even though I know to a man and woman, these people, they all know who this guy is. They know he's bad. And I had Amanda Carpenter on the show. Now it's going on a year and a half, two years ago. And she said they just needed Trump's votes. They had to have the votes to win the election. But I think in light of our conversation here, I think the simple answer is that they need a demagogue to pass all this shit through. Because if you just look at the policies, they're they're crap and people don't like them. And Pence is many things, but he ain't no demagogue. He's about as opposite of that. And they knew that absent a demagogue, um, you know, they weren't going to win. Uh, what do you think of that theory? I think that theory is spot on. Um, I think that the Republican Party today, Republican leadership knows that without a front man, <laughs> they have nothing, right? They're not, yeah. like you say, they don't have popular policies. Um, they don't have a majority of the electorate right? They lost in 2012 and they did this postmortem and they said, right, we need to reach out to all of these different demographic groups. Um, when Jed Bush started his campaign in as a front runner, right, in 2015, his whole campaign was, we're going to do this compassionate conservatism thing, right? We're going to, you know, talk about love <laughs> and generosity and who cares more about you, and Trump came in and just hammered all of that out, right? It was like yeah. made fun of it, right? Like love, no, we're gonna talk about straight, <laughs> right? Um, and this is, you know, we were talking before we started the recording about fascism. And this is where, you know, it was Trump offered a fascist appeal in 2015 and basically just literally hammered um, all of that post-mortem stuff that they had done as a party in 2012 out of the discourse, you know, and mocked Jeb Bush for it mercilessly. Yeah. Right. And then there you go. <laughs> and so then flash forward and Trump's like, I am the strong man, right? I control the party. I control the voters. You have nothing without me. What are you going to go back to talking about, you know, 
nice, <laughs> be nicer. Uh, that's not going to work for you. And, uh, you know, the only way to win is with me. Yeah. Um, Jeb Bush during the campaign, early in the campaign said, I forget who he was talking to, that he would, if presented the opportunity, he would go back in time and kill baby Hitler. <laughs> yes. Um, he did say that. Uh, <laughs> yes. it, it's a great, I'll see if I can find it because it's, it's a wonderful video. Trump, of course, would go back in time and like nurture baby Hitler and pick his brain for more ideas because that's, you know, <laughs> seems to be the, uh, I mean, right? Like Trump, and the, the, the Trump-Hitler stuff, I know that, you know, What's that theory that any argument on the internet devolves into? You're like Hitler, like within three tweets or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the good the, argument. The comps between, you know, Trump and Hitler, at least rhetorically, are they're just, they're just like the, the comps between Putin and Hitler are there when you're talking about terms of grabbing power and invading other countries um, and demonizing and all this other stuff. It's eerily parallel. Um, right. I mean, the, it, it's right there in lockstep. Right. With what Hitler's yeah, absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Hitler was trained as a propagandist during World War One. Um, you know, so as propaganda emerged as a way to um, control the masses and to try to conduct uh, warfare through communication. Um, Hitler was on the forefront of learning those strategies and skills as part of the German army. Um, he's excellent at it. Uh, he's a really, really good propagandist. And so when you read Mein Kampf, if you read Mein Kampf, you'll probably notice that there's a section, but also it's throughout the book, that's entirely devoted to propaganda, how to manipulate the masses, how to spread the word, you know, about my, about German supremacy and, and all this stuff. Um, and in fact, Mein Kampf itself is a recipe book for how to do this and it provides the content but then it also provides the like um training the rhetorical training propagandistic training um and so if you look at uh white supremacists people who've read that book they you know pull out hitler strategies and they say like you should do this you should have a symbol <laughs> hitler right. says have a symbol hitler was obsessed with his symbols right like he talks he devotes pages in this book about the colors he chose why he chose them the flag he chose the symbol like all of that stuff to him was very very carefully crafted like it was a brand, right? The same way that Trump is good at branding. Um, you know, Trump isn't a good politician, but he's really smart at branding um, the same way Hitler was. And so, you know, the hats, <laughs> right? Like it's the front of my cover because if it had said demagogue for president, that wouldn't have been a lie, um, but it would have been completely different branding than, you know, what he chose, make America great again. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, he talks about how to talk. Um, he talks about the language to use, word choice. He talks about how to frame your enemies, this whole idea of, you know, your enemies have no redeeming characteristics or qualities, like that's all there. All of this stuff is in Mein Kampf. And what we know is that people who are authoritarian leaders or want to be authoritarian leaders, they learn from one another. Um, they use the same strategies. They read one another's work. They leave, you know, manifestos for one another about how to do these things. And they're all copycats. And so, you know, did did Trump read Mein Kampf and learn from that? I don't know. Is he just naturally good at branding in a fascist way? Maybe. Um, but yeah, they use similar strategies. Well, he wrote um, Hitler, not Trump, wrote Mein Kampf um, when he was in prison, I believe, which would have been after the the beer hall putsch 
Um, and after that, he was let out of, which is basically like January 6th in Germany, right? It's the yeah. same thing. They tried to overthrow the government. It didn't work. Um, the Germans actually <laughs> rounded up leaders and put them in jail, which is, I don't know, maybe it'll work better for us by not doing that. But um, <laughs> uh, it didn't work well for Germany because Hitler was obviously released from jail and then, you know, given powers under the Enabling Act. And then went, you know, the rest is very, very dark history. Um, so I just want to bring that up because we're we're not out of the woods yet with this guy uh, mm. by any stretch of the, uh, of the imagination. No, no. And in fact, I was um, invited to submit a statement for the record or whatever to the January 6th committee. And I I took it very seriously. You know, I really um, as I've been rooting for the January 6th committee and yeah. uh, <laughs> I really wanted to show how he used language as a weapon and what he did on January 6th specifically, of course, the lead up to it. But um what he did specifically on that day and why um, you could consider it war rhetoric. Yeah. 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 The, the, I think the committee did a great job and it was very, very, very weird to be rooting for Liz Cheney as passionately <laughs> as I was. I, mean, I don't know. It's, just, it's like rooting for the Red Sox or something. It's just a strange, strange <laughs> kind of thing to have to do. Um, is there anybody now there's a big field in, uh, of Republicans now. I think Trump is either going to get the nomination or he's going to run third party. I think he's going to run no matter what. But is there anybody else that you see in this mix of people that could even remotely be demagogy? Because I don't see anybody. But uh, DeSantis isn't really he thinks he is, but he really isn't. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so it's interesting to think about it because i used to say like only trump can be trump like only trump doesn't care about you know the censure of uh good people and you know the media and stuff like that and he's willing to use that homonym and whatnot but it's been clear to me that he has taught his party how to do that you know yeah. just ignore mainstream media and only listen to the people who are on our side uh, and so you see a lot of that, like you see them using the strategies, but I don't think that including DeSantis, I don't think that any of the rest of them have Trump star appeal. Yeah. Uh, right. Like Trump can make you laugh while he is, you know, using the ad hominem and reifying his opposition and whatnot. And, you know, you want to have that like bonded relationship with him where you think you understand what he's really thinking and you know you get to have that backstage appeal because you know he was the guy on the apprentice and he lives in the penthouse with all of the uh, gold gilding and whatnot and has that uh, model wife uh, you know and so there's something really aspirational about trump um in who he was before being president and becoming you know the demagogue of the spectacle that he is that I don't think those other people have. I don't think they have the star power that he does. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I see them trying to do it, but I don't I don't know if they can out Trump Trump. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, the only person that is even popular in that sense would be Tucker Carlson, but I feel like he's done. I think that the severing him from Fox News effectively, the, yeah. the Twitter stuff. But he's kind of a weenie. Like, you yeah. don't look at Tucker and you're like, ooh, you know, I want to know where he lives and I want to live that life. Like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I certainly don't, but you know, I, I don't look at Trump and feel that way either. What the fuck do I know? I'm not yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. not the target we're audience, Jen. You know, no, we're, we're not. no, no. <laughs> we are not the target audience for Lord sure. Lord knows. Um, okay, good. I'm glad to hear that, that 
there's not, um, you know, demagogue school, you know, that's, that's good. That's good news. <laughs> um, okay. So you wrote a piece recently about the power of nostalgia in terms of rhetoric. Um, I thought it was good. It wasn't as good as the, the ones I read coming up in the eighties, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I like your joke there. Uh, we have to lighten it up. We have to lighten it up. <laughs> I wrote that. I wrote out the joke. <laughs> That's what's called a gimme. That's a gimme. <laughs> but seriously, talk a little bit about that. Cause I think nostalgia is a, uh, it's a very, very powerful thing. It's like a, yeah. did you watch Mad Men? Did you watch the show Mad Men? A little bit. You didn't I don't see watch the, a lot of TV. There's a great, in, in the season one finale of Mad Men, he's pitching, Kodak to do the uh, the slideshow thing, you know, where you're doing that. And um, it's called, they say it's this wheel. And he's talking about, you know, changing the name of it. He's like, it's not a wheel, it's a carousel because it brings you closer to the past. And he's talking about nostalgia this way. And I still get goosebumps. It's one of the great monologues of all time. It's so great. Um, but I've nostalgia is obviously super powerful and when used in the wrong hands can be very, very devastating. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by nostalgia. I mean, I'm fascinated by so many things. Um, but as a strategy, a propaganda strategy, I think it's really interesting um, because it preys on our vulnerability for memory, um, right? So it's so easy to shape or reshape people's memories, personal memories of their lives. Um, and to point back to their childhood, for example, and say, um, you know, <laughs> don't uh, don't you wish that things are like they were when you were a kid and, you know, life was so easy and everything was safe and peaceful. First of all, that's not true for everyone. Um, but second of all, uh, if you remember life that way, it's because you were a kid, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you didn't have any responsibility and it wasn't right. your job to make sure that, you know, the bills were paid and life was not, you know, easy for everyone in your house. And so nostalgia very much is uh, uh, this thing where you can hearken back to these imaginary memories that people have, this past, and um, and say that somebody has taken that from you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, part of the whole fascist ethos is, um, you know, like this is America or this is your nation, your country, if it's some other country, and what you know, should be yours has been taken from you. And so it's always about nostalgia, this nostalgic past. And so it can be um, a very strong appeal when it's used to manipulate people, which is which, which is what it does. And so, yeah, so Nikki Haley has been using it. Mm, um, yeah. Trump has been using it, right? Make America great again implies that, you know, there was this time in the past where it was better than it is now. In fact, there has not been. Um, no. <laughs> America, yeah. America is doing better today than it has ever done in the past for the most people. Um, and any argument that says otherwise is uh, misusing data and information. Uh, it, and also when Trump says that, you know, he's pretty vague about when that might be. So you can <laughs> use your imagination to fill in, you know, the blank. Oh, it was clearly the 1980s if you're, you know, Gen X or whatever, or it was clearly the 1950s if you're a boomer, or it was clearly whatever. The one time I could find him answering this question, Maggie Haberman asked him, like in March of 2016, so when was America greatest? And do you know what he said? He said the Gilded Age. Yeah. 
I believe it. Right, I, where there were robber barons, um, right, that that were uh, taking advantage of the country. And he said that it was the greatest then because there were no restrictions on capital. Uh, people could do what they wanted in business. And, you know, there was this huge economic boom. Um, workers had no rights, uh, right? Like uh, there were no safety, like they were putting arsenic in the milk. It didn't matter. You know, like the things that we actually want to protect us. Trump hates those things. Um, yeah. And that to him was like the period he's nostalgic for. Yeah. He didn't say I, that. I, I believe that that's the case. Cause I do think that their whole ethos goes to McKinley. I think like it's like 1890, whatever, yeah. 95, 96, where, you know, 98, where we just beat the shit out of Spain for no reason and take the Philippines and take Puerto Rico and, you know, just take all this shit. And we're experimenting with American empire. And like, like you just laid out, there's all this horrible stuff happening. Um, sla the slavery issue has been, it's in the rear view a little bit, even though obviously there's no equality in any meaningful way, but at least they can pretend to, be righteous and, and and this and that. And, you know, McKinley was the business president. That's what he was. And, uh, you know, Shulgosh shot him. Teddy Roosevelt became president and basically did everything that Shulgosh would have wanted him to do, which is astonishing. So, yeah, I believe that, that, that that's, in my mind, that's what MAGA is about. It's about McKinley. That's what I think. Yeah. But that's not what pe the MAGA people think. <laughs> I don't think they know who McKinley is. I just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they think he's talking about Reagan or he's talking about Truman or I guess, I don't know, Eisenhower. They think somebody else. Um, JFK, because they want JFK Jr. to be the vice president for, for yeah. Trump. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back into like rhetorical styles, is there like a. I'm changing the topic slightly. Do you, do you detect like a conservative pundit kind of rhetoric? Is that like a thing? Because I feel like when I read like a George Will or that Megan McCain's husband, Ben, whatever his name is, there's the ben, Brett Stevens, these guys and that, even that Tom guy that that's on Twitter that is nominally on our side, they have the same kind of, I don't know, condescension, arrogance, like I am so much smarter than you, but I am going to condescend to give you <laughs> pearls of wisdom. And if you disagree with them, you are just being silly, my child. Is that a thing or is this just me projecting? Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, so Tom Nichols, I mean, he wrote a whole book about expertise, right? And how um, we're not listening to the experts enough. Um but I mean, the other side will say the same thing, right? So as an academic, I could tell you I'm pretty sensitive to this argument, right? Which is that liberals are just, uh, you know, people who've read too many books and want you to know it, you know, that we want to control everything. Um, academics want to rule the world kind of thing, um, you know, like the nerds are threatening. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe there's a way that they kind of mirror each other so that um, pundits on the left and pundits on the right are both like trying to show how smart they are so they can out argue each other that way. Um, maybe that's true. I don't know. I don't detect I'm, the I don't snideness know. and the arrogance <laughs> quite as much from the from the leftist. Kind yeah, of people. it might be because you agree with them more. It I don't know. I mean, be. if if I were a mega person and I read, um, I don't know who um you know i might i might feel as though i were being insulted or something like that Paul krugman krugman or somebody like that like maybe i, I, don't, I know. don't know for some reason i can't think of any <laughs> see that's it <laughs> but, I mean, but, but that's what pundits do right like you know their whole thing is like 
I am knowledgeable and well-read. And so therefore you ought to listen to me because I have a good and worthy opinion that's valuable. But they have no power outside of that, right? So they have to like constantly try to show you that they're so smart. There's a there's a self-deprecation or an awareness of limited knowledge, I think, that Democrats yeah. have that Republicans don't in general. Yeah. yeah. So it's a really it's an interesting thing that I think about um, kind of a lot, which is the difference between doing a search on Google and doing research as an academic um, that, that might actually be relevant here. Um, right. Like you do a search on Google and you think, you know, something because you've searched it up and Google has provided you with information, right? But Google is providing you with what it thinks you want to know, mm-hmm. first of all, <laughs> and the answers that it thinks you're looking for. Um, and, and secondarily, you're not generating knowledge by doing that search, right? You are learning what, you know, secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, somebody wrote down, but it makes you feel like you know right? It gives you the illusion of knowing because you wouldn't know that you don't know. Whereas if you're an academic and you do research, the more research you do, the more you study a field, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. Right. And you know how to know, like, what would, what are we missing? What information is a gap in, you know, our understanding of any particular thing. Right. And that's what people try to study. Um, and, and so the difference between doing your search and doing your research um, to me is very vast. And, and I think that that is maybe kind of what somebody like Tom Nichols is talking about with expertise, but it's also like the difference between say an academic and a pundit, um, right? Like yeah. a pundit is someone who's done a bunch of searches and boy, they can write a nice piece probably pretty quickly um, analyzing current events based on that. Um, but uh, academic is someone who does research, right? They, they're someone who's generating knowledge and in generating that knowledge, they're not as confident. They, they're much more humble mm-hmm. about what they think they know because they know what they don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, an important difference. Yeah. It's generalist versus specialist. And, uh, you know, in a sense, like, so, well, it's the difference between search and research. Yeah. I like that search and research. That's good. Yeah. Because do your own research, right? You know, but you're not doing any research, my friend. (laughs) You are Um, searching. You are not researching. (laughs) So who says that academics want to rule the world? Because I think I feel like if Rush Limbaugh started it. Yeah. If you're inclined to rule the world. Yeah. Academia isn't your. (laughs) You know what you do is you're like, I'm going to go to grad school. That's what you do. Be in poverty my whole life. Yeah. I know Rush Limbaugh for uh, Horsemen of the Apocalypse or something like that. Um, His show constantly linked academics to media, to politicians, Democrats, whatever, and some other group and said that, you know, we're all enmeshed in this great conspiracy to deprive you know, the good people of America, whatever it is that they're supposed to have. Yeah. Um, a demagogue is what they're supposed to have. If you follow the logic of, <laughs> of, of Rush Limbaugh to this, this great. Gilded age, gilded age. <laughs> That's why, you know how it's the temperatures are so hot right now. It's because, you know, he's just starting to light up in hell and he's heating up the whole fucking planet. Uh, <laughs> ugh, Rest horrible, peace, horrible. Rush human. Limbaugh. Um, Sorry, but yeah, that's just, he's awful. Um, Okay. Now, speaking of which, now you, you are in Texas and it's hot um, here. Yeah. It's hot there. Um, Can you explain Texas to us? Because 
I, I, it's it's so strange to me. Like Texas is fundamental. It's a, I've been there. It's a cool place. I know a lot of really cool, smart people that live in Texas. Demographically, there's probably more Democrats and Republicans there. And yet it has become this, you know, fascist laboratory. You have three of the worst, like the, the Troika that runs that place are three of the most wretched humans that we can find. So, and, and they keep getting reelected. Um, what, what's the deal? Like what, what, how do you see, how do you explain all that? Um, okay. So if you know one thing about Texas, know that Texas is not necessarily a conservative state. It's a non-voting state. Mm, yeah. So 59%, ter- 59% voting lowest in the country. Lowest in the, like ranked bottom second to last sometimes, right? Maybe above Arkansas. I'm not sure, but Texans do not vote. And so we don't know really, (laughs) who Texans would elect if they voted. It is true that Texas makes it hard to vote. Yes. Um, They make it as hard as possible, and they're trying to make it even harder every year, every every time they meet in Austin, seems like. Um, But we don't really know if it's actually a conservative state. A couple of things that are noteworthy about the demographics, it is a non-white majority state at this point, um, and has been maybe for the last five years, I think. Think. I'm not sure if that's true. There are more people who live in the cities and vote Democratic in Texas than there are um, in the rest of the state. I believe that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, more people voted for Joe Biden in Texas in 2020 than something like 20 other blue states combined, yeah. right? So there's a lot of Democrats here, but the way that Things have shaken out after Shelby v. Holder, which is the Supreme Court decision that changed um, whether states like Texas needed preclearance in order to change their voting laws, which is a bad law. Uh, The things that have been done since then have not been good for voting. Um, There's a lot of oil money in Texas, obviously. Um, Texans benefit the most from the oil economy, I think, than any other state, maybe except for Alaska. And um, those people fund a lot of conservative policies. And then um, religion is huge here. I mean, I don't know if, um, I'm sure it's true around the rest of the country in the South, especially, but, um, you know, we have a lot of mega churches church is very uh, much a part of public life here um, and private life, right? Like you will routinely see people praying in in restaurants before they eat, uh, which is not something that I saw when I lived in Illinois or California, Michigan, places I grew up. Um, and, uh, you know, people have Bible studies. Uh, I live in a college town and they will fill up the basketball stadium with students who are, you know, attending a like church event every couple of weeks or once a week. And, uh, you know, it's very prominent. It's very much a part of the social life here. And, and so I think all of that is kind of explanatory. (laughs) It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I feel like, I don't know. I just feel Abbott is so awful. I just, I don't get it. I get all of those things, but Abbott is so, singularly awful and hypocritical and just kind of evil and not a very good Christian in terms of like, you know, helping people and stuff like that, as I understand it. Just weird to me. Yeah. You can see all of that 
and yet he's the one that gets nominated or whatever. And so if he's yeah. not challenged, then uh, I mean, he got challenged from the right last time, I think, but not from more of the center of the Republican Party. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Ken Paxton right now is uh, under indictment and being censured or investigated at by at the state legislature. So there's something that might come out of that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm I'm as a a person who examines political life, <laughs> from a political science perspective, I'm kind of fascinated to see how it plays out with the way that the state of Texas is trying to take power away from the major cities in Texas. Yeah. Uh, you know, like it's all fascinating and frightening at the same time. So as someone who's caught in the middle of it, you know, it's not a good place to be. I'll just tell you that. Well, you know, the rest of the country is rooting for you. So, you know, uh, the sane part of the country anyway. And uh, move you know, here is really move here and vote is the way to do it. Um. <laughs> hey, there's no state taxes. It's great. Um, they keep saying that with the NBA players, like in the NBA thing. Oh, they, they get your there. money a different way. I mean, there's just not income tax, but we pay a lot of other taxes. Yeah, no, that's too that's too complicated for people to understand. though. <laughs> So, okay, how are we doing? Oh, we're getting on. To, okay, I have other questions, but we'll we'll skip ahead because I don't want to keep you too long. So you started working on your book and, and writing the essay that the book was based on like way back, like in 2015, something like that. And then, you know, you Trump, you said in an interview that um, you were sort of waiting for a public example of who a demagogue was to reveal himself. And then Lindsey Graham called Trump a demagogue during the election cycle. And then you were like, great, I can finish this essay now. And the essay turned into the book. But my point here is that you've been doing this for seven, eight years now, as I have, like I, you know, I'm a novelist. I'm not like a guy that does this. So, uh, but I started doing it uh, in 2016 because I felt like I had, I had to. And uh, if you had told me then, Hey, seven years from now, you're going to still be doing this shit. And this asshole is going to be running again. I would have been like, no, I really thought he was going to get impeached. Like, within a year, like, I don't know what I thought, but I'm, I, I continue to be dumbfounded by all of this. I'm, are you surprised that you're still talking about this in 2023 or no? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, so I actually started writing about demagogues in 2009 and okay. I couldn't finish the essay because I didn't have an example of a demagogue of the spectacle. I thought there would be um, this guy who would like emerge and use ubiquitous communication and propaganda and public relations and, you know, be like this creature of the spectacle. But we didn't have that guy until Trump. And like you said, Lindsey Graham called him a demagogue. And I was like, yes, finally. All right, I'm going to write this thing. Um, and so I was paying attention to him a lot um, right from the beginning. But I didn't really understand demagoguery, right, until I watched Trump um, act. And, and, you know, the thing that really sticks with me is the way that he responded to the Access Hollywood tapes release. Um, mm. You know, if you remember back in that moment, was it October, I think, of yeah, 2016, 2016, right? So right before the election. By the way, we still don't know how we got that tape. But anyway, um, I'm <laughs> I would love to find out somehow, somehow someday. Um, but, you know, if you remember that, it was like, well, this is it. You know, Trump's dead. The, this is over. Yep. <laughs> you know, like this is really the end of his his political career as such. Like this has to be the thing that does it. 
And all the Republican leadership was like distancing themselves. They all of a sudden weren't going to campaign with the guy. They were like on calls with one another saying like, how are we going to dump this guy before like in the next three weeks? And Trump was just defiant. He was just like, tweet through it, man. Yeah. <laughs> right? He was like, mm, we're going to call that locker room talk. <laughs> we're yeah. going to say what? Like, you don't do that. This is how we talk. This is who we are. Like, we're men, right? We're violent. Yes good. Right. And we're just gonna, we're just gonna be defiant about it. And then he was right. And he did. And then he like went to the mattresses at the, the debate and he brought like these women who had accused Bill Clinton of, you know, bad stuff. And then he followed Hillary Clinton around and it was weird. And he just made it work for him. Um, it just refused to, uh, be held accountable. Right. Which is, the essential quality of the demagogue, an unaccountable leader, dangerous demagogue, uh, to go back to that thing we were talking about before. And um, and that showed me a lot. And so um, I did an interview with a local reporter in Austin, Jonathan Tylove, who's now retired, but was an awesome writer. And um, like right after the election, and he was like, you know, what do you think is going to happen? And this was when kind of Republicans were talking about, well, we'll just impeach the guy, you know, yeah. <laughs> like if he's out of control, we'll just impeach him. And I was like, I think they're deluded. Um, and he, he was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, he's not going to stand for being impeached. And he was like, well, how could he avoid being impeached? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> first of all, because I'm not Donald Trump, but I don't, I don't really know how, you know, his brain works. But he will find a way. He won't give over papers. He won't cooperate with the thing. He won't, he won't do anything. You know, he, he will prevent himself from being impeached. And that was before he actually started the presidency. Um, and so then, you know, when he lost the midterms and people were like, oh, this is it. We got him now. We're going to impeach this guy. I was like, no, I mean, you are, but no, <laughs> you know, like it's not going to stop him because he is defiant. Like that's his essential quality. He cannot be held accountable. Um, you know, and so he's still relitigating the 2020 election, denying that he lost because for the first time in his life, losing the election meant that he was held accountable. He was right. denied re-election. The people held him accountable, right? And he can't accept that, right? He, he cannot be held accountable. And so he, of course, didn't lose uh, the election. He, you know, he's running again. All of this stuff is because this is a person who fundamentally cannot be held accountable to the rule of law or to decency or to, you know, yeah. expectations or anything else. So, yeah, I mean, the thing that disappoints me is that we have let him get away with it. Right. Yeah. And so when you look at political science literature about demagogues, um, you know, it's like, well, the demagogue will never get the party nomination because the party leadership will make sure that the demagogue is held in check. They would never allow this to happen. Um, and what we know about how fascists, you know, take power, authoritarians take power is by corrupting those around them, right? By pulling them into their schemes and making them complicit. And so Donald Trump has lured in the leadership of the Republican Party um, and made them complicit so that they are as accountable as he is. And if he falls, they fall with him. 
Um, and to me, that's a real shame because we needed those people to stand up for America. And so, you know, when I look at somebody like Tom Nichols, who might be abrasive in the way that he writes, um, you know, he is at least a Republican who has stood up and said, you know, this guy sucks. This guy is a danger and a threat. And, you know, there are Republicans who have done that. And I appreciate that because, I mean, it's the bare minimum, to be honest, but at least they're doing the thing that we needed them to do. And we needed more people to do, which is to say that, you know, no, this isn't who we are. Yeah. No, it's the, when I was looking at it at the time, I remember thinking, my God, when the Republicans, I mean, Republicans don't like Russia. When they figure out that Russians own this guy, my God, (laughs) they're going to flip it. Little did I know that the whole fucking party was co-opted. But yeah, you've got Lindsey Graham who called him a demagogue. Who knows? You go back and read quotes that Lindsey Graham was saying before he went golfing with Trump and then after, and it's night and day. So yeah, I think your your point about corruption is there. You know, Kevin McCarthy, like what, six weeks after the insurrection is down yeah. at Mar-a-Lago kissing the ring. It's disgusting. Right. It's disgusting. Right. These right. After he said, like, this is his fault. Yeah. And then, yes. you know, and you mentioned the the Access Hollywood tape. The one thing that he did that he's never done before or since, as far as I know, is he did say, I'm sorry. He did apologize during the video and his response. It was not a very sincere. I'm sorry if you were offended. Yeah, it wasn't a very good apology, but he doesn't, (laughs) I don't think he's ever even said, I am sorry ever to anybody for anything other than that. And I feel like they just said, look, just do this so that, you know, it'll, you can win the election if you say it. And he just held his nose and said it. Um, But it's interesting. Uh, Okay. So one last question. How does it end now for demagogues? We have these demagogues, like historically speaking, I don't think it tends to end well, did not end well for Hitler, cut to the bunker, did not end well for Mussolini, cut to the meat hook. So what, you know, what's going to happen with Trump? What do you think? Or, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, things don't you typically end well for authoritarians. Um, Ah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, the American story is a different story from those other ones. You know, I don't know that. I don't know that we'll see an ending quite like that, Uh, but no matter how he ends or it ends, uh, you know, there will always be people who will deny that he was a bad guy, right? There will always be people who defend him. So it'll be like the JFK thing or the moon landing thing or any other thing, right? Where there's a kind of conspiracy narrative um, that's impenetrable around it. And there will always be people who go to their graves swearing that Donald Trump was a good guy and the greatest president who ever lived. Oh my God. It's like bizarro, bizarro mm-hmm. Superman. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't have much faith in the, I'm sure he's going to get indicted. I'm sure there's going to be try. I just feel like there, it's just going to delay and delay and delay. And the well-done steak is going to get him before he ever goes to jail. You know what I mean? Like he's already, he he's talking about how old Biden is, but he's 77 and in way worse shape. Like, you know, that's not young. Um, I I don't know. So it's, it's, uh, and then, you know, like you say, it'll just be Republicans fumbling to pick up the football that, you know, there, none of them are really equipped to, to handle, um, either way, like I'm, I'm laughing about it a little bit, but it's all very sad and serious because, you know, we have this guy, he's made life demonstrably worse for everybody, not just in the United States, but pretty much everybody on planet Earth, other than, I don't know, maybe like Putin, I suppose. Um, even Putin doesn't seem so happy right about now. You know, I think he's just a <laughs> just a miserable person. And it's, um, you know, what you said earlier, you're right. It's 
this is the best time to be alive that we've ever had, you know, for most people. Um, when you look at historically, you have like, you know, peace in Europe for that length of time has only before been achieved during the reign of Antonius Pius in like the second, third century, whatever that was. You know, you have to go back that far to have that much of Europe not fighting each other for that long. And we have all this cool shit. We have vaccines. We have the ability to roll out a vaccine for a coronavirus, which if that if COVID-19 had happened 10 years earlier, we would not have had. We have all this stuff. We have the luxury of of having a quack like RFK Jr. talking about how bad vaccines are, we're we're in that that's a luxury for a society to have something like that. So, um, yeah. for Trump to come along and just sort of poison it, I don't know. My hope is that he's the death rattle of the old way, and that we're going to evolve to something better. But I don't know. It seems like the the kids today are uh, much more open minded than they are closed minded, and much more willing to embrace changes to the environment and, you know, the way that we interact with one another. So I'm hopeful. That's good. Well, if you're hopeful, you you see the kids all the time. So that makes I me I see hopeful. the kids today. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so where can we find you? You're still on Twitter. I make the same joke every week. You're still on Twitter until it blows up, which may be before this airs on Friday. Right? Yeah. You're- I like have soft quit Twitter, but it's hard to quit Twitter. Yeah. Um, you can't. I'm not on threads. Uh, I don't really want to be a meta product. Um, I have blue sky. I kind of like it over there, but it's not very active over there. I have all the accounts other than threads. I'm a Mastodon and post and spoutable. And I don't know. I'm not on any of them as much as I'm on Twitter or blue sky. Yeah, me too. Blue sky is nice, except it's not, you you know, you have to be like invited in and it's this weird kind of, it's just, there's not enough people there yet. They they haven't, they haven't ramped it up. And it's like, I don't understand why. No. And I mean, I love Twitter because I learned so much like about breaking news, but also from reporters who tweet out like background about their story. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, But also from like, you know, as as you're writing, it's lonely, you know, and it's very solitary. And to be able to just talk it out with a group of people who suggest sources and things that you look at and like give you ideas. Like I've really, really benefited um, while I was writing my previous book about, um, about Trump, you know, from being able to talk it out as I was writing it. And I really miss that. Yeah. So I hope we get that back somewhere. I hope so. I mean, and maybe it'll be, I, I don't know. I, You know what else I like? I like like when people were doing like the live tweets from the courtroom. Like I yeah. remember there was a time when they were, it was revealed who, um, you know, Michael Cohen's other like client number three was. And, and, and I, I think I found out cause I was kept hitting refresh, like within 60 seconds of everyone finding out, you know, yeah. I, it was, it was Hannity and I couldn't, it just blew my mind. I was like, yeah. Oh my God. You know, and <laughs> like the immediacy of this stuff. Like um, we've been through some good times on Twitter to me, yeah. the best day ever was the um, four seasons, total landscaping day. <laughs> I don't know if there's a better day in Twitter history than that day. That was the best day. (laughs) (laughs) If you're feeling sad, go and just in the search, do four seasons total landscaping and relive that moment. Oh my God. Yeah. That was, you know, the (laughs) the other day I was sitting at my, at my laptop and I, I faced the street here and I looked up and there was a a van going by and it it really was Four Seasons Landscape. I, I know. I think I was writing about Giuliani at the time and it just, I'm like, this is too weird now. Oh, know. the networks. Yeah. Not total though, not total. 
you know, just four seasons landscaping. Oh. So, so Trunk, who does the animations for um for our five eight show, he'll he'll put in the jokes like four seasons total, and then whatever it is, you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's never that that's never not funny. And the meme of Trump yelling at the kid mowing the lawn to me, yeah. the, that's never not funny to me. Yeah. So um, okay, I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Um, your book fun. is called uh, Demagogue for President. Please go follow her on Twitter and all these other places. Uh, Jen Murchia, thanks so much for joining me. It was really my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W-Media.